It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, you know, as we go through this series on Revelation, each week I'm faced with a challenge, you know, going through the study, uncovering, you know, awesome theology, incredible spiritual truths. And each week I, I struggle with, am I going to be able to efficiently or sufficiently enough reach your hearts with the truth? So some passages are harder than others. I don't think this one is going to be hard at all. Uh, as you know, we started a mini-series within the series last week called Who Can Escape? And we had part one. And we learned last week, <clears throat> the people that escaped, the first answer to that question is the church on earth that we are currently a part of. The second half of chapter seven is the second half of the answer, which is the church in victory. In other words, the church in heaven that we will also one day be a part of. And as a Christian... Do you ever, for lack of a better word, do you ever feel lament? Whether you're a conservative political Christian or a liberal political Christian, do you ever feel lament about the direction of America or the world when it comes to morality and justice? <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> do you ever get frustrated when it seems like evil always wins? Injustice runs rampant. And our culture and society seem to become more depraved every year. I mean, the fact of the matter is every human wants to celebrate victory over whatever their perception of evil or injustice in the world might be. Every human longs for some sort of win. That's why people... Christians included develop obsessions with politics, culture wars, social movements. We're hoping for a victory somewhere in some way with something. But the fact is Christians don't need to hope in these things. For we really truly know if we're children of God, we know in our heart there's really only one way that evil will be defeated. And it's not at the ballot box. It's not in a culture war. It's not with laws passed in Congress. The fact of the matter is Revelation is written to make an encouragement to Christians to look to Jesus instead of those other things. But sometimes we are so obsessed with this world that we can't even be encouraged by the book of Revelation. Yes, we are wrestling against darkness and evil daily. And yes, it is hard. And yes, there are tears that we shed in this battle. But there is a great day coming. And the evidence that this day is coming is everywhere. And even when life seems as far removed from heaven as it can get, evidence of the kingdom of heaven advancing is unmistakable if you know where to look. If you're struggling with hope today because you have obsession with the wrong type of victory, if you're struggling with hope today because you can't see the evidence that the kingdom of heaven is advancing, I believe today's passage will help. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, and the, after this is the 144,000 that we broke down last week. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude no one could number 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me. This is John is being addressed by one of the elders, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. I just love that response. And then he said to me, therefore they are before the throne of God. Then he said, then they said to me, there we go. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them from his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall any, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Man, that's such a good passage. But there's so many things here that I think if we just read it without really stopping to study it, we miss on some of the blessings. The history of this passage is important. I want you to see that the church that this was originally written to, the first century church, is in tribulation. Notice the first thing we see here, there's these victory palms that are being waved back and forth. Did you know that in the first century, waving of palm branches was how a city and all the people within it would all come together and celebrate a military victory. This was a common thing. Can you think of another scripture, by the way, where there's a references to people waving palm branches? Duh. Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. The crowd was celebrating Jesus because they had great hope that he would defeat Rome and restore Israel as a sovereign nation. They were so thirsty, excuse me, to celebrate victory. But their vision of victory was too small. Jesus had something much greater than just defeating Rome in mind. A week later, this same crowd cheered for Jesus' crucifixion, which ironically was the moment of the ultimate victory over evil. But that's what the palms were a symbol of, a military victory, a conquest. And this church was definitely faithful in tribulation. Look at Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's written to the same group of people, okay? One of those seven churches. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. When Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, the church, the first century church, was in the heat of intense tribulation and persecution from Rome. And then later, probably about 30 years later, when John wrote the book of Revelation, it had gotten even worse. And here's the sad part. The church itself was powerless politically or culturally to stop the Great Tribulation. The only power that the church had was the power of preaching the gospel and the ability to love the unloved and excluded from society. 
So sacrificially, relentlessly, they were loving the sick and the orphaned and the poor. And under the threat of death, they were faithfully preaching the gospel. Listen, listen, just think about this. Living in that kind of hopeless tribulation creates a desperation for justice and victory over evil. The desire for peace and safety and vindication. You can understand how deeply the first century church was longing for Jesus to hurry up and return in victory. I believe that the tribulation that they were facing in the early church helped them understand better than us, frankly, how to live in the hope of the return of Jesus. Tribulation helped them see worldly solutions as empty promises, merely nothing more than redecoration or rearranging total depravity furniture. That's really what it was. And in America, we don't face that type of tribulation like they did. And frankly, we don't face the type of tribulation most, and I say that again, most of our brothers and sisters around the world face even this morning as they worship in secret. More on that later. But without that persecution, it is easy to think that we can change the world through things like politics or culture battles. Remember what Peter taught the church? In his first epistle to them, he said, stop obsessing over the evils of Rome and submit to government. Focus on the kingdom of heaven instead. As a result of this, they all understood that the day of the Lord will bring the greatest victory ever. That will be the ultimate conquering of evil. Look, I'm not saying that I want to face that kind of tribulation that the first century church did. But I do think today's church could learn a lot from their example, don't you? So that's the history of the passage. I think it was important to point those things out. Look at the theology. What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I'm describing this week the church in victory. Last week was the church in battle, the 144,000 that we proudly take our place among the ranks in today. And this is the church in victory. First of all, I want you to see that it is an innumerable church. You can't count it. It's so big. Look at Genesis 32, 12 and see if you can pick up on some similarities with our passage today. I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Do you see that? And how did John describe the multitude? It couldn't be what? Numbered. Do you see the connection in the language used to describe the promise to Abraham and then the description of the church in victory? The multitude around the throne, so large that no one could possibly count it. It's a beautiful tie to the Old Testament promise. There are people in this multitude from every corner of the world, every tribe, every nation throughout human history. Yes, even tribes that are no longer alive today. This multitude is so massive, it is so innumerable... It is so vast, not only can you not count it, you can't even use numbers to describe it like we did the 144,000, which was a description of the church in battle. John says, look, I'm not even going to try to paint a picture with numbers. It's impossible. Just as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky cannot be numbered, neither can the number of the redeemed. Look what Paul says in Galatians 3. Actually, I'll just read this to you. I didn't put it up on the screen. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What's the promise? That they would be an uncountable multitude. People from every tribe, every nation, all brought together for what? To celebrate one Lord and one victory over evil. This multitude is the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham to include Jews and Gentiles from all nations. And they are, in fact, quite victorious. What is the church doing here in this picture? They're celebrating with the symbol of what? Palm branches. The great ultimate victory, a spontaneous, organic expression of glory and honor to the Lamb of God who has fulfilled the scroll of redemption that we've been opening one seal at a time for the past several weeks. They are celebrating the end of the war between good and evil. And the Lamb of God who has conquered sin and he's conquered death, they are celebrating a victory so massive, so complete, It cannot be quantified. And what about the angels in this scene? Why are they there? Well, we know from 1 Peter, they are stunned. They are amazed at the unfolding of the plan of God redeeming his beloved chosen before the foundation of the world. They are stunned by the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who keeps sealing and sealing and sealing his beloved. It's all so stunning. They too fall on their faces declaring utter amazement at the whole epic story. I want you to see something else here. There are three questions that we've looked at in the last month, and there's one answer to all of them. One of the elders asked John this unique question, who are these clothed in white? Where are they from? This literary device is very common in Jewish literature, especially the Hebrew Bible. We see an example of it in the book of Ezekiel, and there's about five others or six I could have put up there. But here in Ezekiel, God asked the prophet a question that has an obvious answer. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Doesn't that sound just like the answer to the question in Revelation? It's a rhetorical question with an answer that is intended to set up a dramatic, important teaching moment. For example, modern day. Who is the greatest quarterback of all time? Come on, we all say it. Say it with me. One, two, three. Some of you are not among the redeemed, I could see, but most of you. So listen, imagine John's state of mind. His answer. The elder says, who are these in white robes and where do they come from? He's got this massive smile, you know. Maybe there's tears of joy, incredible ecstasy. He says, oh, sir, you know who they are. Don't kid me. You know the answer. Come on, angel. We all know. Answer it with me. Okay, quick review. There was a question asked by the martyrs under the altar. Do you remember it? In the fifth seal. How long? What was the answer? Until the redeemed are sealed. Remember that? The next question asked by the unredeemed who were facing the wrath of the Lamb. Who can escape? What was the answer? The redeemed. Then we have this third question. Who are these, John? Where do they come from? What's the answer? The redeemed. Three questions, one answer, all the same, the redeemed. 
All three, all three questions answered the same way. It is us redeemed in white robes as we celebrate a great victory in heaven. So that's really good theology, but I, I think there's an incredible, heartfelt, personal application for us today. Waiting for victory. Look, I'm going to do my best. But not only is the description of this crowd beyond numbers, it's also beyond words. But I'm going to try. This was the sermon preview this week. It may not always feel like it, but in our battle against evil, the church isn't losing. It's just waiting. Jeremiah 32, 37 and 38. I will gather them from all countries. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. Church, there is evidence for our hope in this victory everywhere. It's plain to see if you aren't overly obsessed with the world. For example, I did some research this week. There's a really good website called BillionBibles.com. You can go check it out sometime. Not right now. Just wait. (laughs) It makes a very conservative estimate of the number of Christians in the underground church in China. Those who worship in secret in house churches, they put that estimate at 147 million. Just for perspective, that's a a little less than half of the population of America. It's about 10% of the Chinese population. This does not include any that might profess Jesus in the state-controlled called three-self church. This is underground Christians. China has 1.4 billion people, 147 million. It's a massive number. But it's just a snapshot from one nation. It doesn't include what God is doing in other places besides America, the rest of Asia. If there's 147 million in China, imagine how, how many there are in the rest of Asia. What about in Russia? South America. Right now, the gospel is exploding in Africa. What's my point? The church is massive and it's everywhere. We are just one small sliver of it. The kingdom of heaven isn't just hanging on by a thread as evil swings us back and forth, the kingdom of heaven is steamrolling. Toward this scene in Revelation. We are not losing. We are waiting faithfully. Doing what God has called us to do. Until we get to be a part of that victory party. And this is the process we've learned about in the last couple of weeks. The church in battle. As the Holy Spirit seals those who are alive on earth leading to the church in victory. Look what Paul says. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. That's the sealing process. And look at the last part. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the victory part. That's what we get a glimpse of in this second half of Revelation chapter 7, the glorified state of our church. 
He's describing how the kingdom of God is advancing the progression in chapter 7 from last week to this week. This multitude is the culmination and the celebration of all the work of the Holy Spirit who is relentlessly sealing God's chosen. The completion of the plan of redemption that is being opened seal by seal in that scroll, resulting in this what? Innumerable, indescribable multitude of glorified redeemed. This church is our ultimate inheritance as offspring of Abraham. As we walk with Jesus through this life on earth and we wrestle with darkness and evil. A child of God does not have to live in obsession with this world. We have something much greater to come. And until that day, God's redeemed are glorified. We are called to endure the pain of tribulation, the suffering that comes from fighting evil. How do we do it? By proclaiming the gospel until then. This next part is so powerful. Look what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The victory celebration in Revelation reveals something else. Something that wasn't revealed in our look into the throne room earlier. Remember earlier on in our study. We have a little bit more details now from a different angle. It reveals a very special, precious relationship between the creator and his church. God the Father gently interacting with his redeemed. Shepherding them. Sheltering them. Guiding them to living water. It is a celebration of the fact that hunger or thirst or scorching heat, by the way, those three things are used all throughout Scripture to describe what? Tribulation. He says there's no more hunger, there's no more thirst, there's no more scorching heat. Those things are no more. No doubt that this tribulation we live in, it can be painful. It can be difficult. It is heartbreaking, it is frustrating, it is discouraging, and sometimes it seems like it is absolutely relentless. All of us in here have experienced heartbreak of some kind that comes from living in a world alongside of evil. And no matter who wins elections or culture wars, no matter your station in life or your circumstances, this life will be sure to bring you tears. We have shed many, them, shed many tears in this life. All of us, I know I have. What do those tears that the scripture says Jesus will wipe away, what do they represent? They represent all our hurt and all our pain caused by our struggle against evil. It represents the loss of loved ones, friends. It also represents the death of our earthly dreams. It represents broken hearts, anger from betrayal by close friends or family. Have you ever been angered to tears? 
They represent failed relationships. They also represent our self-inflicted pain, our own shame, our own guilt, our failures. It represents the burden of our own depravity. Those tears represent represent defeat, discouragement, depression, anxiety, dismay, hopelessness, helplessness, and when we stay awake at night for our greatest fears. The great shepherd will wipe away the tears from all those things. He will dispatch all of it. All of it gone forever. This is the existence, the experience that every human craves for all those things to be wiped away. Even atheists want this. No, I'm not trying to make a joke. Everybody wants this. I've never met anyone who said, you know what? I'd rather go ahead and suffer a lot. Sadly, anything in this world that promises peace and safety, do you remember that from the four horsemen? Anything in this world that promises peace and safety cannot ever deliver. Only our Jesus can deliver it. So we persevere. We press forward. We don't quit. We anticipate this celebration around the throne as a church in victory. But until then, we recognize we are just a small sliver. A part of something so much bigger than Sarasota or America. This is a worldwide global movement. And all of us, millions of us followers of Jesus together are longing for this celebration when Jesus wipes away all of our tears. That's what today's passage in Revelation teaches us. We aren't losing. We're just waiting. We, along with millions of brothers and sisters, faithfully wait together for the Spirit to finish sealing the rest of God's chosen. Until then, we proudly take our place among the ranks, from every tribe and every nation. And we will continue to relentlessly wrestle with darkness and evil. Jesus, we are so ready for victory. Lord, we also confess that we often get distracted We start looking for comfort and other things. We become too invested in earthly solutions. Lord, we confess that to you as sin. We pray that your spirit, who not only seals us, would draw us back to the reality of this great day. Lord, we will continue because you commanded to wrestle against the forces of darkness, proclaiming the gospel, loving the unloved. 
Lord, keep us satisfied in our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We love you, church. Have a great week. Next week, seal number seven. Just gets better.